You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, you do so richly bless us in in ways beyond our imagining. Um, You come to us as a shepherd. You're graciously, wonderfully with us and going before us. And uh, as we reflect this morning on times of trial and tribulation, uh, we we certainly don't make light of those. Uh, And it's not a soft word which you speak to those, but a a true and a powerful word. And to know that they they sincerely don't compare to the glory that will be revealed and that um, you yourself are with us in the midst of those. And that you will ultimately, finally uh, restore, that you will put things to right. So, Lord, draw our eyes, draw our hope, draw our certainty to you, we pray. And be with us now. And ultimately, I pray that, as always, not my words, but in the end, your living word would go forth, Jesus, your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, uh, what we're going to look at today, um, this originally was going to be the final class. We've actually extended it a couple of weeks now, so um, uh, we've, we've done a little... Uh, transition. So Mark 13 is what we're going to be looking at today, which is really one of the most um, sort of curious and challenging uh, chapters in the Bible some way. It's sometimes referred to as the mini-apocalypse. Um, uh, Mark 13 is what we're going to look at today. Uh, I think it's um, I think it's a fascinating word. I think it's a great word for this time. Um, not to over-compare, but... Um, uh, you know, we live in a time now that, that you know, you take COVID out of it. Um, but I mean, it's a time of when we do experience so much uncertainty and, and so much um, divisiveness, um, wars and rumors of wars, um, that, that seems to speak to our moment right now. And I'll um, say a few words by way of introduction, and then we'll launch into Mark 13. But one thing I'll say, it's the longest block of teaching in Mark. Um, and so it, it, it takes on the, um, the the form of the it takes on the form of the farewell discourses. Um, so uh, it's a in many ways it's a farewell discourse from Jesus to his followers, like Jacob, like Moses, Joshua, Samuel, and some of the others. And so you have this long block of teaching. Um, it's it's this farewell discourse, and we've seen not just uh, in chapter twelve. But uh, in some ways, we see the, the culmination of the rising conflict uh, between Jesus and the religious leaders. Uh, and so, we, <laughs> and not just some of them, all of them. It's not just the scribes. It's not just the Sadducees. It's not just the Pharisees. It's not just the Herodians. Um, so it's all of them. So basically, Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. Um, to the you know to the uber religious, um, to the legalistic, um, to the political, um, to the sort of the 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 the, the movers uh, and shakers, the elite, those who pull the levers. Uh, Jesus, um, Jesus is you know wonderfully graciously is an equal opportunity offender, um, and we see their various efforts to um, undo Jesus uh, in in the twelfth. And I'll say that. Chapter 12 begins with the parable of the tenants. And if you remember the parable of the tenants, um, in a nutshell, it is, it's about God the Father. Uh, it's about the kingdom of God. It's about Jesus. It's about the people of God who continually reject um, God's messengers. Jesus says, you know, the vineyard owner sends his various servants, and they are, they are beaten, they are mistreated, they are rejected, some are killed. The vineyard owner says, "I'll send my son, uh, and they will respect. Uh, they will respect my son." And of course, what do they do? Um, they kill the son and say, "Great, we're going to kill the son, and we'll take the vineyard for ourselves." Um, so you see this mounting conflict. So it's it's not a it's not a surprise who Jesus is talking about here, and it's not a surprise who Jesus is talking to here. Um, and you know, once again, the prediction of Jesus' death, and they try to trap him uh, in religious teaching about paying taxes um, to Caesar, what is the greatest commandment, um, uh, all of this. And then we hear, finally, and this is the last little bit of 12 before we go to 13, um, and he sat down opposite the treasury, and it, and it's, uh, 
you know, to some degree that word is descriptive of, of where he sat, but, but we see also um, Jesus' judgment upon the temple and the religious system of his day. The fact that he sat down opposite the treasury, in some ways descriptive simply of, you know, I sat down opposite of, uh, but it's also descriptive of this his his judgment is, is coming upon this. And so part of what we'll look at today is one of the challenging topics uh, in relation to God, which is judgment. Um, and and what, I, uh, what I hope that we'll see is, and I have some different quotes and so forth, but um, uh, judgment, is, um, judgment is God's calling a thing what it is. Judgment is God's calling a thing what it is, and it's calling a thing what it is for the purpose of deliverance. Uh, it's, it's calling a thing what it is ultimately for the purpose of, of healing. It's like identifying a sickness, uh, a, identifying an illness, identifying a disease. There's a judgment upon, for instance, you know, cancer in your body. Um, there's the identification of it. There's a calling a thing what it is, and there's a judgment of it, but the judgment upon it uh, is designed for healing. Uh, and it's designed for freedom. It's designed for salvation. So again, judgment is one of those things I think we often wrestle with. Hey, don't judge. Don't be judgmental unless it's those people. And then, you know, everybody says don't judge, but everybody judges someone, right? <laughs> don't be judgmental unless it's those people. And then, yeah, definitely you need to judge um, those people. So judgment is something we, we grapple with to some degree rightly because um, you and I tend to not handle it well, right? And let me ask you, how well do you all do in the judgment business? I mean, I, I, my kids could come give, you know, t- testimony. Say, yeah, he should have judged us here and he didn't. And he just came down just like freakishly crazy hard here when it's like, okay, that would have been, you know, yeah, poorly played, Dad. Um, so, yeah, judgment is something that we, that we grapple with. But we see Jesus um, judging and God's judgment is ultimately for deliverance. And God's judgment is ultimately for healing. And quite frankly, God is able to judge uh, in a way... Um, in which we cannot. So he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people, Daniel Morning, um, uh, putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Uh, So this is the last thing. We we see Jesus uh, grappling with um, the religious leaders uh, and the powerful and then noting um, uh, this widow who, well, obviously what, what she does here is she places all of her trust in God. Uh, you know, talk 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 about talk about all in. Um, uh, she's uh, she's she's all in, and and her, I guess, not just her trust in God, but her belief in God. Uh, and and clearly, we see where her treasure is. Her treasure is not in the things that she possesses. Her treasure is in the God who possesses her. Um, and and it's a, it's an interesting contrast and in judgment on the grandeur of the temple. Uh, the temple is about to be. Uh, about to be judged and all of its magnificence and all of its uh, wealth and ostentatiousness um, that 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 temple is about to be judged and in contrast we see true treasure um, in in the the faith of this widow uh, in her poverty uh, and the precarious situation of her life in her in her weakness we see the richness of her life we see the treasure and that she's ultimately um, possessed by God and then thirteen one is where we are now. And I, you know, well, I, I think what we might do is, I mean, granted, we're going to speak to it in a piece, but we'll kind of go in sections here a little bit. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, Opposite the temple, again, hear that language. He sat at the Mount of Olives opposite um, the temple. And going back to the Old Testament, this is the place where judgment on the temple will be, uh, will be expressed. So Jesus goes down uh, and he sits opposite the temple. Uh, and then we hear that um, Peter and James and John and Andrew, 
uh, the first four that he called to be his followers, um, these, four, these four come to Jesus now, uh, and they asked him privately, tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And, and I'll pause there. Uh, I'll pause there for just a second. Um, when will these things be, they ask, uh, and uh, what will be the sign when they are about to be accomplished? Let me ask you this question. This can be rhetorical or not. Um, do you like to know things ahead of time? <laughs> That's... Yeah, exactly. Maybe. <laughs> exactly. If I like it, then yes, exactly. If it's good news, if it's encouraging, yeah, if it's something, yeah. If it's a trial, no. Uh, keep, me in the, keep me in the dark on that one. Ignorance is bliss. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, sometimes, uh, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think this is, um, and we're, gonna, we're going to get into this because Jesus, uh, Jesus addresses this throughout. I mean, they... Uh, they they ask him privately, and I you know I don't I don't fault them, but kind of like hey we're insiders, can you give us the scoop? Um, you know what do we need to look for? What will be the signs? And that's the human condition, um, because we we have this folly that we think we'll have security if we know what's coming, <laughs> which we all know is the farthest thing from the truth, right? Uh, oh, exactly. Con- control in the is the human condition. With without a doubt, if I know what's coming. Um, then, then I'll have control. If I know what's coming, um, then I'll have security. And even, you know, Christians have been incredibly guilty of, uh, of coming up with all these um, formulas about the end times, right? And one of the things that Jesus says clearly and unmistakably here, you don't know. Um, I don't know. Um, so if I don't know, I can assure you that, that, that you don't know. And one of the things that we'll see repeated here again and again and again, and this is an important thing, in uh, what faith looks like, and what living with Jesus looks like, and what following Jesus uh, looks like. It's it's not uh, it's not having all the knowledge. It's being in relationship. It's being in relationship with Him. It's it's being awake and alert and watchful. Um, d- discipleship is an invitation to be watchful, not to have all the answers, not to know everything that's coming, um, but to be in relationship and to be watchful and. and and when we say to be watchful, it doesn't mean we're going to see everything coming. Uh, and, and to be watchful doesn't say we've, you know, <laughs> we've, we've got all together. Because once again in life, we've been watching. We're like, even watching, we're like, I didn't see that coming. Um, and so that's one of the things um, that we'll, we'll see happening. Let me give you a little word about the temple here. And I'm going to, uh, I was going to write down, but I'm just, um, uh, and, and forgive me, this is, uh, uh, won't be crazy long, but, but just a little bit about the temple um, and its and its grandeur. And, and let me say, too, one of the things about the temple is this, and as I begin this, let me ask you, and again, this can be rhetorical or not, but, um, well, let me just say this. Um, the, the, the people, the, the Jews of Jesus' day, the, the temple was in many ways um, representative of who they were. Um, the, the, the temple represented the fact that they were that they were chosen by God, that they were favored by God. So they, they looked at the temple as, uh, as being foundational to who they were. Um, so it wasn't just the place that they came for worship. Uh, it wasn't just like, you know, we love our church and it's a beautiful building. We come here on Sunday, but it's not necessarily who I am. But for the people, in many ways, the temple was who they were. They were God's chosen people. They were God's favored people. And so the temple had tremendous significance for them in a religious fashion, in a in a political um, fashion, and a sociological. I mean, they understood themselves in many ways uh, in relationship to um, to the temple. And so, when Jesus um, tells them that that not one stone will be left upon another, that's 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 an earth shaking statement. Uh, again, not just because it's hard to imagine something that beautiful and grand being gone, which it which happened. Uh, we hear that indeed. Not only was it encircled by the Romans under Titus? Was it sacked? Um, was it burned? Uh, but apparently as the, um, uh, you know, you had uh, it, it various pace, places in the temple was actually clad in gold and silver and jewels. And of course you had the old temple treasury as well. But as it burned, um, the, those precious metals melted 
um, and they went down into the stones. And so they, you know, they pried, the Romans would actually pry the stones apart to take the gold, which had melted down um, in between the stones. Not one stone will be left, will be left upon um, another, is what Jesus says. So basically, I mean, it, he's talking about their world being rocked altogether. Um, so again, it's, it, it is very much about a building, but it's much more than a building also. And I, and I think that's a helpful word for you and me, because all of us uh, have experienced, and I hate to say it, well, <laughs> we've experienced moments where our world has been rocked, where basically our sense of foundation, our understanding of ourselves has been just whoosh, um, taken, taken away from us. And it's a, it's a precarious feeling. And, and life, will give us, um, life will give us additional opportunities um, where we experience that as well, where, where things are taken out. And that's part of the good news in what is given here, of course. Once again, this judgment will ultimately be good news because Jesus' judgment on the temple will take away an idol and give something that cannot be taken away. And if you remember Jesus' words, destroy this temple, and in three days um, I, I will raise it up. And Jesus uh, ultimately will give us himself a, a temple which, which cannot be taken away. Though the world, though the world turned dark, uh, and though um, all the the fury and rage and, and and brokenness and chaos of the world was thrown at him and upon him upon the cross, Jesus is raised three days later. And so, rather than a building, something a greater temple is given to you and to me, something more lasting uh, and and more secure. But at this point, when Jesus is talking, the the temple had been under construction for about fifty years under Herod. So, uh, so imagine um, how grand it was. So it had been under construction for, for about for about for actually it was for more than fifty years. Um, they had been building on this, and 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 no other place was sort of Herod's desire for grandeur more apparent than in the temple. Um, uh, it was it was just it was it was crazy. So listen to this. Herod enlarged Solomon's temple to an esplanade measuring some. 325 meters wide by 500 meters long. So, of course, um, for those of us who are Americans and don't know the metric system, um, uh, myself included, so the circumference was nearly a mile. So the circumference was nearly a mile. So, I mean, you know, one, kind of uh, wrap your mind uh, around that by way of uh, uh, the size. The immense 35-acre enclosure could accommodate 12 football fields. So again, you think about you know, pick pick your stadium of choice. Put together twelve, uh, put together twelve football fields. I mean, this is uh, this is crazy. The southeast corner, um, southeast corner of the retaining wall hung some fifteen stories above the ground and sloped down to the Kidron Valley. So again, a fifteen-story um, retaining wall. Uh, and not only, I mean, that, uh, but the blocks of stone used in the construction were enormous. Josephus, and Josephus um, was a historian of the day, uh, and much of what we know uh, uh, about, and even about Jesus comes from Josephus, who was not a Christian, but who you know, accurately reported what was going on uh, in, in his time, in his, in his history. But he reports that some of these stones, right, in the uh, retaining wall, we haven't even gotten to the temple yet. We're just talking about we're just talking about the retaining wall at this point. Um, that some of these uh, were forty cubits, approximately sixty feet in length. Um, uh, the, it's insane. Uh, it's like if we so we went to Israel, and that was like one of the things. The, everybody says Israel's like magical, changed the way you read yes. the Bible. This is really the only thing it changed for me was like yes. the scale of the temple. Yeah, I mean, just, I mean, actually, yeah, I'm sure, I, I, see, I haven't been yet, but I can only imagine them actually standing there and just thinking, holy cow, tons upon tons. Some of the stones are, like, as big as this room, and you're like, how did these people get this stone physically onto the yeah. wall? Like, I just don't, I couldn't comprehend it. Well, this may be, because it, it was mentioned, this may be some of the ones that you saw. It was mentioning some of the ones of Wilson's arch measure, 42 feet long, 11 feet high, 14 feet deep, and weigh over a million pounds. Yeah, I mean, just imagine, 11 feet high and 14 feet um, deep. That's like a mountain, for goodness sakes. Um, so these are, these, are some of the, these are some of the stones... Um, that were there, and again, that's that's just the retaining wall. When you get up to the esplanade, and then this royal 
portico again that's you know covered um, with 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 gold and with uh, jewels. Uh, Corinthian there were columns crowned with Corinthian capitals and rose to a height of forty feet, supporting a cedar paneled ceiling above. The, listen to this: the thickness of each column, uh, and there were three. And there were three rows of these columns, right? The thickness uh, of these columns with the Corinthian capitals um, were such that uh, it would take three men with outstretched arms to uh, to envelop it. So that that gives you the you know the width. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, you know, boom, uh, mind mind blowing here. Um, just and again, it would it would catch the sun. Um, it would, it would, you know, it would be radiant. Um, so, so Jesus, Jesus is saying, not stone is going to be left upon another. So here's, uh, so here's some setup here. And of course, they, they, they ask him, you know, what are the signs? Um, what should we, um, what should we look for? And let me now. I'm going to go on, um, and this is in 13:5 is where we are now. And Jesus began to say to them, "See that no one leads you astray." Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard." For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit." And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise uh, against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So let me let me stop there for a moment uh, before we go. Any any comments or reactions to that? Sounds like politics today. Yeah, I mean wars and rumors of wars and. Yes, yes, yes. Until and this says until the end. Right. Yes. <laughs> so it's kind of like it, it seems to me that's mirroring really well. That yeah. James. Ab- ab- abs- absolutely. Well, you know, and uh, part of the part of the good news and and judgment, if if God is doing the judging, is to say that eventually in a world in a world which is violent and chaotic, that that. That a that a good and just God will not overlook that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that in, that in time God will restore and set things and set things right. Yeah, and she was just kind of talking about how you know that's the theme of scripture. The theme of scripture is not that God's people are going to be victorious. I mean, ultimately, in the end, yeah. yes. But yes. The the 
one of the large themes of scripture is that God's people are persecuted, mm-hmm. and the people who are doing God's work are persecuted, mm-hmm. and why should we kind of think anything different mm-hmm. of us? And he says, here, you're going to be persecuted for yes. your namesake. Yes, so. yeah, my, my, yeah, I mean, we see that um, it, 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 it brings peace and reconciliation, but yet within some it also brings division, uh, that, that name of Jesus. Yeah, with, and, you know, as you know, it's even within families. Um, Daniel and I have had this conversation. Um, yeah, the, not the prophet, but yeah, <laughs> Dan, yeah, okay, yeah, okay, right, yes, yes. yes. Daniel can speak And um, about what, what he calls apocryph- apocryphal yeah. texts. And I counter this. And um, so in, in this text, it's very interesting. This is the last moment that Jesus speaks of um, the Old Testament. That Jesus speaks the text of the Old Testament. And um, his expression is, in this world, bad stuff has happened. Mm-hmm. And bad stuff will continue to happen. And, and, and he speaks on this. You know, it, through mm-hmm. scripture, mm-hmm. but he's he, he speaks of it as a division. You are set free. The world that is that is still fallen has not been set free. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so this comes from um, here. We have uh, uh, Proverbs mm-hmm. chapter thir- chapter thirteen, mm-hmm. verse thirteen. A glad heart makes a cheerful face. But sorrow of the heart crushes the spirit. And so he's saying, honestly, the world is, has been and is continually your enemy. Mm -hmm. But I'm not trying to force you. And it continues Mm -hmm. on. This is is precluding to our eternal feast Mm -hmm. of eternal bread and and eternal water. Um, we have in, in verse in verse fifteen, all the days are afflicted with evil. All things are afflicted with mm-hmm. evil. But a cheerful heart has a continual feast. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, you uh, you know those, and I and I and I confess, I sometimes can uh, probably apply these too simplistically. But I, I I always go back again and again to Jesus's words in John's Gospel. In this world, you will have trouble, um, but. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Or I, I think about Paul's uh, second letter to the Corinthians. You know, we're, we're pressed, but we're not crushed. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4. We're, we're pressed, but we're not crushed. We're persecuted, not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed, carrying on our bodies the death of Jesus, the life of Jesus might be ma- made manifest in us. Or, you know, Isaiah 25, um, 6 through 9, which we often read um, at, at funerals is a word of restoration. On this mountain, the Lord will prepare for his people a feast of, of rich food, of, uh, you know, food full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. He will remove the shroud which enfolds all people. He will swallow up death forever. And he'll wipe away tears uh, from all eyes. I mean, that, that seems to speak to a God who is victorious, a God who restores uh, but also the the very real presence of hardship and the necessity, too, for God to defeat death. I mean, the ultimate uh, the ultimate symbol of chaos uh, in the world is death. Uh, the, the ultimate sense of disorder in the world is death. Uh, and and we hear that, of course, Jesus the temple will be destroyed and the temple of Jesus's body will be destroyed. But we will ultimately destroy the chaos, which you know brings about all this anger and division uh, and separation. And, of course, ultimately, the division and the separation that is death um, will be destroyed. Uh, and, and forgive me, it's a little long, but I want to read you this quote. And in some ways, chapter 13 is in some ways uh, apocalyptic in that it's unveiling. It's not a full-on apocalypse, but it, there's some uh, unveiling which which happens here. And again, talking about the defeat of chaos and the and the restoration of creation, the coming of the Son of Man to judge the wicked and to establish a kingdom of righteousness there um, I mean so that's that's part of what's going on and it's uh, described and I love this um, more hortatory than revelatory um, so so to to encourage 
um, to to encourage us. And it's also we're going to get in in just a moment. It's eschatological, which talks about um, that that God will ultimately come, uh, and that there will be um, a final judgment. And again, here here's why that's good news. And again, forgive me, this is a long quote, um, but. Um, Clearly, if I were really apologetic, I wouldn't read it. Um, but but uh, but it's um, it's from Miroslav Volf's book um, Exclusion and Embrace, and and in it, Volf talks about judgment. Uh, and and Volf is is from a part of the world, former Soviet bloc, where you know he's experienced, uh, you know, his people have experienced and seen you know, genocide and, and and violence of a level that you know, that, that we haven't seen. Uh, you know, for first firsthand, but and part of his basic thesis is, which I'm 100% on board with. He says, you know what, we need a God who judges because if God doesn't judge, who's left to judge? You and me. If if God is not ultimately the final judge and arbiter, um, then that puts us in the judgment seat. And I think most of us can agree, Christian or not, as he says, that's a terrible idea um, to think that you're looking for one of us um, to ultimately put things to right. So here's what. Here's what Volf says, and you can, you can agree with them or disagree with them or agree in part or whatever it might be. But I think it's, it, it's, it's, it's provocative in a good way, um, and, and invites reflection. So here's what he says: One could object that it is not worthy of God to wield the sword. Is God not love, long-suffering, and all-powerful love? A counter-question could go something like this. Is it not a bit too arrogant to presume that our contemporary sensibilities about what is compatible with God's love are so much healthier than those of the people of God throughout the whole history of Judaism and Christianity? <laughs> so there's a, there's a great start. Just like, okay, maybe it's a little presumptuous of us. Uh, but, he, but he goes on and he says this. Recalling my arguments about the self-immunization of the evildoers, one could further argue that in a world of violence... It would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end um, to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. Here, however, I am less interested in arguing that God's violence is not unworthy of God than in showing that it is beneficial to us. Adlin has rightly drawn our attention to the fact that in a world of violence, we are faced with an inescapable alternative either God's violence or human violence. Most people who insist on God's non-violence cannot resist using violence themselves or tacitly sanctioning its use by others. So it's kind of like, all right, I, I appeal to non-violence, but I, but I have people who protect me um, uh, who are violent. They deem the talk of God's judgment irreverent, but think nothing of entrusting judgment into human hands, persuaded presumably that it is less dangerous and more humane than to believe in a God who judges, that we should bring down the powerful from their thrones, Luke 1, 51, 52, seems responsible, that God should do the same, as the song of that revolutionary virgin explicitly states, seems crude. And so violence thrives, secretly nourished by belief in a God who refuses um, to wield the sword. And he goes on, My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians um, in the West. So, you know, Wolf is a proponent for nonviolence. And, and part of what he says is if, if you're going to be a proponent of nonviolence, you have to believe that God will ultimately judge um, and that God will ultimately set things to right. And he goes on. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone, which is where a paper that underlies this chapter was originally delivered. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude toward violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. 
and as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities uh, of the liberal mind, uh, is what he says. So basically, his thing is, it's a, it is a violent um, world, and, and if God doesn't wield the sword, then you and I are left um, to wield the sword. If God doesn't judge, um, then you and I um, are left to judge. Um, what, what do we say uh, in the midst of um, a, a violent world, and so we so uh, here's the here's the context. Jesus is talking about um, the, the 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 close uh, of of the age um, uh, and uh, just uh, all that all that will come. And then we continue on in thirteen fourteen here. But when you see, and this is one of those we'll talk a little bit about this. This is one of those uh, confusing verses. And and Mark actually puts a little editorial note in here. So Jesus is saying. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, and then Mark inserts, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. I love, let the reader understand. So do you understand? Um, yeah, I, I, don't know that I, I don't know that I understand yet. So going on, um, uh, let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Once again, here he says, but be on guard, or be watchful, um, be alert, um, but be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand, but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth um, to the ends uh, of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Uh, so there's there's more. We'll pause there. We'll pause there a second. So anyone uh, have any questions or comments or can give a quick summation um, to, to what I've just read there? <laughs> if the, the days were cut short for the sake of the elect, is that where people get the idea that there's going to be a rapture? Yes, I think I think I think that's yeah that's yeah exactly one of the one of the yeah exactly one of the, and it's funny because in some uh, you know a lot of what the commentary uh, in this it says you know now, you know all this uh, all this stuff that's been created is just that uh, stuff that people has created because Jesus is pretty clear about yeah. I know um, you guys talked about this in small group the week that I wasn't there, and Precious said it was a really interesting uh, discussion. Yeah, I do think so. That's that's a good like um, that that throws us into Jesus. I think that's that's like mm -hmm. the surprise point in this passage. It's not that it's been cut short because you know. It's, everything's going to get worse and worse, and all of a sudden, you know, there'll be a rapture. It's, it's been cut short because the judgment of God has been judged. So it's not like, it's kind of like, you know, Miroslav Volk um, was talking about, you know, yes, we believe in a God who will judge, but even more truly, we believe in a God who has made his judgment. 
and made it on the cross. So, Absolutely. Right. So we can't even believe in a nonviolent God because that that God took the violence that Volf says is not even required of him, but that he he elected to give out of his goodness. Yes. And then took it upon himself, and that's what we see here. Is like so the judgment that you know would have been good even then. The Lord has cut short, and we see it all fulfilled in Jesus. That, mm. And that's for the sake of the elect. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we don't need to look to a rapture for hope. We, we right. have Jesus. Yeah, and of course, you know, and, and, and of course, amazingly, wonderfully, uh, God does wield the sword, but how does God wield the sword in the cross? Uh, so it's like it, it is a God who wields the sword and yet wields the sword in a dramatic way. Um, it's, it's not in the way that the world wields the sword that God does, but he wields the sword in the cross. Uh, what you just said is really ironic because what happens right before he's betrayed in one of the Gospels. Yes, Malchus. <laughs> and he says, put down the sword, my time has come. Exactly. Yeah, we were talking about this, um, uh, uh, how, how Jesus said, look, um, you know what, I could call down legions right now. Um, you know, a, a legion was around, I forget, it was like five to 6,000 men. You know, I could, you know the, you're, you're coming out with swords and clubs. <laughs> Do you not know? I could call down legions from heaven um, right now. And Peter, of course, yeah, Peter put away the sword. Yeah, this is the way that I'm going to wield. And of course, that's, you know, as we talked about too in Mark's gospel, often the command to silence given to the people. Why? Because we want a God who wields the sword in a way that the world wields the sword, but just a bigger one. Uh, and exactly, but it's like, no, you can't understand me until you understand me to the lens of the cross and the resurrection. That's the way, um, that's, uh, that's the way that, uh, that I will defeat Satan, um, that I will, uh, that I will defeat the strong man. Um, uh, One more thing to add Yes. That, you know, in Revelation 19, is that where uh, the Lord comes in? And so, what John does in Revelation 19 is he steals from Isaiah. At the end of Isaiah, you see this God coming in judgment, and it says that he has the blood of his enemies on his clothes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a terrifying image. Mm -hmm. um, and then John takes this image in Revelation 19, and then you see, I see one coming, mm -hmm. and he's wearing robes, and there are blood on them. But then after that is when the battle takes place. So, this, this person, you know, this mighty person who speaks with a sword out of his mouth, he comes in and he's bloody before the battle begins, and then mm -hmm. he speaks his word and it ends. And so it's mm -hmm. like the blood of the enemies that we're expecting, this terrifying God in, in Isaiah, is all of a sudden we find out the blood of the enemies, he, it's his own blood going mm -hmm. into the battle, and, mm -hmm. and the battle ends before it even begins. Yes, yes. Yes. No, that's not, that's not, that's not. no I, I. Hey, listen. That's awesome. That's well worth sharing. Um, this is not really ripping off what Daniel just said, but back to James five, when they're talking about repayment for people who are the the bad people, basically mm -hmm. the people who have been keeping wages from mm -hmm. the people who are being persecuted. They uh, say. The pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of armies or the Lord of hosts. Mm. And they made a point this morning to say it's not that they've reached, the their cries have reached God, they've reached this Lord of hosts who's Im implying that he has armies of angels that will yes. come and repay yes. all the yes. tribulation. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's funny because the... the, the well, I don't know if the world. I mean, certainly, our our the culture around us now in in, in the U.S. I mean, there's a, there's and and it's not a you know it's it's not a bad longing. There's a lot of talk about justice, um, but unfortunately, uh, and I and and I'll, I'll probably mangle this, but uh, but I want to be careful to say you know there are a lot of injustices that need to be addressed. I mean, there it's true. I mean, that's just like no, honestly. I mean, there are a lot of and and. And, and some are systemic and, and, and some are not, but there, but there are injustices. But unfortunately, the way the world tends to think and to execute justice, and you know, we can't just sort of uh, opt out. We have to opt in, but yet the way that the world tends to do it tends to be more retribution and, and basically a changing of sides rather than an establishing of justice or kind of a transfer of power, if you will. Um, you think about, you know, 
after, after wars, when they when truce when truces happen, well, the the victors inflict their justice uh, uh, upon the losers, and there's you know there's the transfer of power and wealth and possessions and and so forth, which of course uh, only leads to resentment and further violence down the road uh, is is what it sets up. It just it just breeds uh, it breeds resentment. Um, this was interesting, and I want to uh, read a little bit about this to you. Um, because we're you know we're we're running out of time here, um, but one of the things it it, it talks about, um, which I think is 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 helpful to you and to me as as we think about all this, and these are some thoughts. And again, you're welcome to agree um, or disagree. Is that faith does involve knowledge? Um, faith and does does involve knowledge and knowledge of Jesus. And and of course, Jesus was very uh, particular in his ministry, he was averse to those who wanted signs and miracles because of the realization, one, that they can be explained away, or they kind of titillate briefly, but they don't bring about real transformation. And, and his preaching and his teaching were were important that, as, as Paul would say, you know, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that our minds would be renewed, that we would have this um, knowledge. Uh, and, and yet, what we see here in all of this is that what does discipleship look like? What does hope look like? What does, dis- what does security look like? Well, it's not in having all the answers, uh, but it's, it's trusting God to provide in the moment uh, and the realization that God will provide in the moment. Jesus says, you know, when you're dragged before the rulers, don't worry about what to say. Um, the, the Spirit will provide you the words in that moment. I, what? One commentator kind of funnily said, this doesn't apply to preachers. He says, you know, y'all are scheduled to preach. He's like, do your homework. Um, so, no, just like, so he said, no, this is, this is different. Um, uh, but he, you know, it doesn't mean having all the answers, but it's trusting God to provide in the moment that God will give us, um, that God will give us grace for the moment. And, 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 that's, and that's the truth. It's, it's, so it's, uh, it's, it's this... Um, realization that yes um there's challenge in our lives there's there's challenge um in our world and and of course a lot of the challenge at least if you're anything like me i don't even need anybody out there i i I produce my own challenge i don't have to have any help whatsoever i can make it all um on my own without any inside (laughs) um interference um but but to say um that it that it yes um well, let me just let me just read this quote to you. We believe answers, knowledge will relieve us of our duty of waiting and watching. Our duty is waiting and watching. The salvation brought by Jesus is not a salvation of knowledge. The salvation of Jesus is rather a way of following, of faithfulness, of standing guard at our post, for no one knows about the day or the hour. It is not a way of dispensing with mystery, um, but living with mystery. So it's like we, we, we have answers and we don't have answers. We, we have answers that ultimately that, that God will, that Jesus will come again uh, and, the, and that chaos will be defeated. And just like the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the temple is a prototype. So the destruction of the temple is, uh, is a prototype of the great battle which will happen um, where, where ultimately the Son of Man will return uh, and, and defeat uh, defeat the evil one. Um, the, the the arch enemy will be will be defeated. And so we see, in some ways, um, this is uh, this is a prototype um, that that is happening here. That the God will ultimately come uh, and be victorious. And so uh, you and I, you and I have that in our lives. We we have that knowledge of that, and we have that uh, uh, assurance of that. That we can take solace in the prospect that um, that that. that Human history, <laughs> as Edward says, let me just. Uh, human history, with all, at all of its greatness and potential, as well as its propensity to evil and destructiveness, can be re- redeemed. Human life uh, is a uh, is a futile and sordid endeavor. The longing that things ought not to be as they are and cannot be allowed to remain as they are is essentially an eschatological longing. Um, so you know what things aren't as they should be. That is an eschatological um, longing, um, but the grand finale of the gospel is a is a sure hope um, for the future. So just like the destruction of the temple is a prototype, 
so also the cross is a prototype. Uh, we, we see the victory of God in the cross, uh, and, it's, and it's that foundation for you and for me that's a security. Knowing the way that God has wielded the sword is final. I saw, <laughs> the curtain of the temple is torn in two. Um, the earth um, turns dark and the earth shakes. The stone is rolled away and Jesus is not there and is risen. And so for you and for me in our lives, we have that prototype and that assurance uh, that evil ultimately is defeated. And again, uh, it's important to note not just the evil of those people, but yours and my evil. Um, that, that God, thanks be to God, defeats that as well. Um, and that there's a word of restoration. Well, uh, I've gone... Uh, I'm going to have to sprint in, um, put my vestments on. Um, the people are going to be surprised that I'm not early. Um, but uh, let me let me pray for us as, as we go. And we'll continue on next week with all the answers to all your questions. Um, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks that you give us, um, uh, that you give us a preview um, of of the ultimate and final victory, and that we have victory now in, in your cross and your resurrection. You have addressed chaos uh, and division and disorder in the world and in our lives. You have given us salvation in Jesus, your Son. You have invited us and called us to be people who are watchful. And so, Lord, fill us with your Spirit that we might be awake, not, uh, not in our own power, but, but in your power working through us. Uh, that we our lives might be one uh, might be lives of hope might be lives of assurance and i pray lord that as you have given us your forgiveness and mercy and salvation that we might find our hope and strength in that and and that it would flow into our relationships lord and that that hope that we have uh, might yes um, buoy us but we pray that it would also flow through us uh, into the lives of others that they might know the hope that is in you All this we ask, ourselves we offer, in the name of your Son, who is Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.